Chapter 9 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 9 The Face of Death. I must have fallen asleep from exhaustion. When I awoke, I was very hungry, and after busying myself searching for fruit for a while, I set off through the jungle to find the beach. I knew that the island was not so large but that I could easily find the sea if I did but move in a straight line, but there came the difficulty, as there was no way in which I could direct my course and hold it, the sun, of course, being always directly above my head, and the trees so thickly set that I could see no distant object which might serve to guide me in a straight line. As it was, I must have walked for a great distance, since I ate four times and slept twice before I reached the sea but at last I did so, and my pleasure at the sight of it was greatly enhanced by the chance discovery of a hidden canoe among the bushes, through which I had stumbled just prior to coming upon the beach. I can tell you that it did not take me long to pull that awkward craft down to the water and shove it far out from shore. My experience with Jaw had taught me that if I were to steal another canoe I must be quick about it and get far beyond the owner's reach as soon as possible. I must have come out upon the opposite side of the island from that at which Ja and I had entered it, for the mainland was nowhere in sight. For a long time I paddled around the shore, though well out, before I saw the mainland in the distance. At the sight of it I lost no time in directing my course toward it, for I had long since made up my mind to return to Futra and give myself up, that I might be once more with Perry and Gak the hairy one. I felt that I was a fool ever to have attempted to escape alone, especially in view of the fact that our plans were already well formulated to make a break for freedom together. Of course I realized that the chances of the success of our proposed venture were slim indeed, but I knew that I never could enjoy freedom without Perry so long as the old man lived, and I had learned that the probability that I might find him was less than slight. Had Perry been dead, I should gladly have pitted my strength and wit against the savage and primordial world in which I found myself. I could have lived in seclusion within some rocky cave, until I found the means to outfit myself with the crude weapons of the Stone Age, and then set out in search of her whose image had now become the constant companion of my waking hours, and the central and beloved figure of my dreams. But to the best of my knowledge Perry still lived, and it was my duty and wish to be again with him that we might share the dangers and vicissitudes of the strange world we had discovered. And Gak, too. The great shaggy man had found a place in the hearts of us both, for he was indeed every inch a man and a king. Uncouth, perhaps, and brutal, too, if judged too harshly by the standards of a feat twentieth-century civilization, but withal noble, dignified, chivalrous, and lovable chance carried me to the very beach upon which I had discovered Ja's canoe, and a short time later I was scrambling up the steep bank to retrace my steps from the plain of Futra. But my troubles came when I entered the canyon beyond the summit, for here I found that several of them centered at the point where I crossed the divide, and which one I had traversed to reach the pass I could not for the life of me remember. It was all a matter of chance, so I set off down that which seemed the easiest going and in this I made the same mistake that many of us do in selecting the path along which we shall follow out the course of our lives, and again learned that it is not always best to follow the line of least resistance. 
by the time I had eaten eight meals and slept twice I was convinced that I was upon the wrong trail, for between Futra and the inland sea I had not slept at all, and had eaten but once. To retrace my steps to the summit of the divide and explore another canyon seemed the only solution of my problem, but a sudden widening and levelness of the canyon just before me seemed to suggest that it was about to open into a level country and with the lure of discovery strong upon me I decided to proceed but a short distance farther before I turned back. The next turn of the canyon brought me to its mouth, and before me I saw a narrow plain leading down to an ocean. At my right the side of the canyon continued to the water's edge, the valley lying to my left, and the foot of it running gradually to the sea, where it formed a broad, level beach. Clumps of strange trees dotted the landscape here and there, almost to the water, and rank grass and ferns grew between. From the nature of the vegetation I was convinced that the land between the ocean and the foothills was swampy, though directly before me it seemed dry enough all the way to the sandy strip along which the restless waters advanced and retreated. Curiosity prompted me to walk down to the beach, for the scene was very beautiful. As I passed along beside the deep and tangled vegetation of the swamp, I thought that I saw a movement of the ferns at my left, but though I stopped a moment to look it was not repeated, and if anything lay hid there my eyes could not penetrate the dense foliage to discern it. Presently I stood upon the beach looking out over the wide and lonely sea, across whose forbidding bosom no human being had yet ventured, to discover what strange and mysterious lands lay beyond or what its invisible islands held of riches, wonders, or adventure. What savage faces, what fierce and formidable beasts were this very instant watching the lapping of the waves upon its farther shore! How far did it extend? Perry had told me that the seas of Pellucidar were small in comparison with those of the outer crust, but even so this great ocean might stretch its broad expanse for thousands of miles. For countless ages it had rolled up and down its countless miles of shore, and yet today it remained all unknown beyond the tiny strip that was visible from its beaches. The fascination of speculation was strong upon me. It was as though I had been carried back to the birth-time of our own outer world, to look upon its lands and seas ages before man had traversed either. Here was a new world, all untouched. It called to me to explore it. I was dreaming of the excitement and adventure which lay before us, could Perry and I but escape the Mahars, when something, a slight noise I imagine, drew my attention behind me. As I turned, romance, adventure, and discovery in the abstract took wing before the terrible embodiment of all three in concrete form that I beheld advancing upon me. A huge, slimy amphibian it was, with toad-like body and the mighty jaws of an alligator its immense carcass must have weighed tons, and yet it moved swiftly and silently toward me. Upon one hand was the bluff that ran from the canyon to the sea, on the other the fearsome swamp from which the creature had sneaked upon me, behind lay the mighty untracked sea, and before me, in the center of the narrow way that led to safety, stood this huge mountain of terrible and menacing flesh. A single glance at the thing was sufficient to assure me that I was facing one of those long-extinct prehistoric creatures whose fossilized remains are found within the outer crust as far back as the Triassic formation, a gigantic labyrinthodon. 
and there I was, unarmed and with the exception of a loincloth, as naked as I had come into the world. I could imagine how my first ancestor felt that distant prehistoric morn when he encountered for the first time the terrifying progenitor of the thing that had me cornered now beside the restless, mysterious sea. Unquestionably he had escaped, or I should not have been within Pellucidar or elsewhere, and I wished at that moment that he had handed down to me with the various attributes that I presumed I have inherited from him the specific application of the instinct of self-preservation which saved him from the fate which looms so close before me to-day. To seek escape in the swamp or in the ocean would have been similar to jumping into a den of lions to escape one upon the outside. The sea and swamp both were doubtless alive with these mighty carnivorous amphibians, and if not, the individual that menaced me would pursue me into either the sea or the swamp with equal facility. There seemed nothing to do but stand supinely and await my end. I thought of Perry, how he would wonder what had become of me. I thought of my friends of the outer world, and of how they all would go on living their lives in total ignorance of the strange and terrible fate that had overtaken me, or unguessing the weird surroundings which had witnessed the last frightful agony of my extinction. And with these thoughts came a realization of how unimportant to the life and happiness of the world is the existence of any one of us. We may be snuffed out without an instant's warning, and for a brief day our friends speak of us with subdued voices. The following morning, while the first worm is busily engaged in testing the construction of our coffin, they are teeing up for the first hole to suffer more acute sorrow over a sliced ball than they ever did over our, to us, untimely demise. The labyrinthodon was coming more slowly now. He seemed to realize that escape for me was impossible, and I could have sworn that his huge fanged jaws grinned in pleasurable appreciation of my predicament or was it in anticipation of the juicy morsel which would so soon be pulp between those formidable teeth? He was about fifty feet from me when I heard a voice calling to me from the direction of the bluff at my left. I looked and could have shouted in delight at the sight that met my eyes, for there stood Ja, waving frantically to me and urging me to run for it to the cliff's base. I had no idea that I should escape the monster that had marked me for his breakfast but at least I should not die alone. Human eyes would watch me end. It was cold comfort, I presume, but yet I derived some slight peace of mind from the contemplation of it. To run seemed ridiculous, especially toward that steep and unscalable cliff, and yet I did so, and as I ran I saw Ja, agile as a monkey, crawl down the precipitous face of the rocks, clinging to small projections, and the tough creepers that found root-hold here and there. The labyrinthodon evidently thought that Ja was coming to double his portion of human flesh, so he was in no haste to pursue me to the cliff and frighten away this other tidbit. Instead he merely trotted along behind me. As I approached the foot of the cliff I saw what Ja intended doing, but I doubted if the thing would prove successful. He had come down to within twenty feet of the bottom and there, clinging with one hand to a small ledge, and with his feet resting precariously upon tiny bushes that grew from the solid face of the rock, he lowered the point of his long spear until it hung some six feet above the ground. To clamber up that slim shaft, 
without dragging Jod down and precipitating both to the same doom from which the copper-colored one was attempting to save me, seemed utterly impossible, and as I came near the spear I told Jod so, and that I could not risk him to try to save myself. But he insisted that he knew what he was doing, and was in no danger himself. "'The danger is still yours,' he called for unless you move much more rapidly than you are now, the Scythic will come upon you and drag you back before ever you are halfway up the spear. He can rear up and reach you with ease anywhere below where I stand." Well, Josh should know his own business, I thought, and so I grasped the spear and clambered up toward the red man as rapidly as I could, being so far removed from my simian ancestors as I am. I imagine the slow-witted Scythic, as Ja called him, suddenly realized our intentions and that he was quite likely to lose all his meal instead of having it doubled as he had hoped. When he saw me clambering up that spear he let out a hiss that fairly shook the ground, and came charging after me at a terrific rate. I had reached the top of the spear by this time, or almost. Another six inches would give me a hold on Ja's hand when I felt a sudden wrench from below, and glancing fearfully downward, saw the mighty jaws of the monster close on the sharp point of the weapon. I made a frantic effort to reach Jaw's hand. The Scythic gave a tremendous tug that came near to jerking Jaw from his frail hold on the surface of the rock. The spear slipped from his fingers, and still clinging to it, I plunged feet foremost toward my executioner. At the instant that he felt the spear come away from Jaw's hand, the creature must have opened his huge jaws to catch me, for when I came down, still clinging to the butt-end of the weapon, the point yet rested in his mouth and the result was that the sharpened end transfixed his lower jaw. With the pain he snapped his mouth closed. I fell upon his snout, lost my hold upon the spear, rolled the length of his face and head, across his short neck, on to his broad back, and from there to the ground. Scarce had I touched the earth than I was upon my feet, dashing madly for the path by which I had entered this horrible valley. A glance over my shoulder showed me the Scythic engaged in pawing at the spear stuck through his lower jaw, and so busily engaged did he remain in this occupation that I had gained the safety of the cliff-top before he was ready to take up the pursuit. When he did not discover me in sight within the valley, he dashed, hissing, into the rank vegetation of the swamp and that was the last I saw of him. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core Chapter 10 Futra Again I hastened to the cliff edge above Jaw and helped him to a secure footing. He would not listen to any thanks for his attempt to save me, which had come so near miscarrying. "'I had given you up for lost when you tumbled into the Mahar temple,' he said, for not even I could save you from their clutches, and you may imagine my surprise when on seeing a canoe dragged up upon the beach of the mainland I discovered your own footprints in the sand beside it. I immediately set out in search of you, knowing as I did that you must be entirely unarmed and defenseless against the many dangers which lurk upon the mainland, both in the form of savage beasts and reptiles, and men as well. I had no difficulty in tracking you to this point. It is well that I arrived when I did." "'But why did you do it?' I asked, 
puzzled at his show of friendship on the part of a man of another world and a different race and color. "'You saved my life,' he replied. "'From that moment it became my duty to protect and befriend you. I would have been no true Mesop had I evaded my plain duty. But it was a pleasure in this instance, for I like you. I wish that you would come and live with me. You shall become a member of my tribe. Among us there is the best of hunting and fishing, and you shall have, to choose a mate from, the most beautiful girls of Pellucidar. Will you come?' I told him about Perry then, and Dean the Beautiful, and how my duty was to them first. Afterward I should return and visit him, if I could ever find his island. "'Oh, that is easy, my friend,' he said. "'You need merely to come to the foot of the highest peak of the mountains of the clouds. There you will find a river that flows into the Lural As. Directly opposite the mouth of the river you will see three large islands far out, so far that they are barely discernible. The one to the extreme left as you face them from the mouth of the river is Anorak, where I rule the tribe of Anorak. "'But how am I to find the mountains of the clouds?' I asked. "'Men say that they are visible from half Pellucidar,' he replied. "'How large is Pellucidar?' I asked, wondering what sort of theory these primitive men had concerning the form and substance of their world. "'The Mahars say it is round, like the inside of a tola-shell,' he answered. "'But that is ridiculous. Since, were it true, we should fall back were we to travel far in any direction, and all the waters of Pellucidar would run to one spot and drown us. No, Pellucidar is quite flat, and extends no man knows how far in all directions. At the edges, so my ancestors have reported and handed down to me, is a great wall that prevents the earth and waters from escaping over into the burning sea whereon Pellucidar floats but I never have been so far from Anorak as to have seen this wall with my own eyes. However, it is quite reasonable to believe that this is true, whereas there is no reason at all in the foolish belief of the Mahars. According to them, Pellucidarians who live upon the opposite side walk always with their heads pointed downward, and John laughed uproariously at the very thought. It was plain to see that the human folk of this inner world had not advanced far in learning and the thought that the ugly Mahars had so outstripped them was a very pathetic one indeed. I wondered how many ages it would take to lift these people out of their ignorance, even were it given to Perry and me to attempt it. Possibly we would be killed for our pains, as were those men of the outer world who dared challenge the dense ignorance and superstitions of the earth's younger days. But it was worth the effort if the opportunity ever presented itself. And then it occurred to me that here was an opportunity, that I might make a small beginning upon Ja, who was my friend, and thus note the effect of my teaching upon a Pellucidarian. Ja, I said, what would you say were I to tell you that, in so far as the Mahar's theory of the shape of Pellucidar is concerned, it is correct? I would say, he replied, that either you are a fool or took me for one. But Ja, I insisted, if their theory is incorrect, how do you account for the fact that I was able to pass through the earth from the outer crust to Pellucidar? If your theory is correct, all is a sea of flame beneath us, where in no peoples could exist, and yet I come from a great world that is covered with human beings, and beasts, and birds, and fishes in mighty oceans. 
You live upon the underside of Pellucidar and walk always with your head pointed downward? he scoffed. And were I to believe that, my friend, I should indeed be mad. I attempted to explain the force of gravity to him, and by the means of the dropped fruit, to illustrate how impossible it would be for a body to fall off the earth under any circumstances. He listened so intently that I thought I had made an impression, and started the train of thought that would lead him to a partial understanding of the truth. But I was mistaken. "'Your own illustration,' he said finally, "'proves the falsity of your theory.' He dropped a fruit from his hand to the ground. "'See,' he said, "'without support even this tiny fruit falls until it strikes something that stops it. If Pellucidar were not supported upon the flaming sea, it too would fall as the fruit falls. You have proven it yourself.' He had me that time. You could see it in his eye. It seemed a hopeless job, and I gave it up, temporarily at least, for when I contemplated the necessity explanation of our solar system and the universe, I realized how futile it would be to attempt to picture to Ja or any other Pellucidarian the sun, the moon, the planets, and the countless stars. Those born within the inner world could no more conceive of such things than we can of the outer crust reduced to factors appreciable to our finite minds such terms as space and eternity. "'Well, Ja,' I laughed, "'whether we be walking with our feet up or down, here we are.' and the question of greatest importance is not so much where we came from as where we are going now. For my part, I wish that you could guide me to Futra, where I may give myself up to the Maharas once more that my friends and I may work out the plan of escape, which the Sagoths interrupted when they gathered us together and drove us to the arena to witness the punishment of the slaves who killed the guardsmen. I wish now that I had not left the arena, for by this time my friends and I might have made good our escape, whereas this delay may mean the wrecking of all our plans, which depended for their consummation upon the continued sleep of the three Mahars who lay in the pit beneath the building in which we were confined. "'You would return to captivity?' cried Ja. "'My friends are there,' I replied. "'The only friends I have in Pellucidar except yourself. What else may I do under the circumstances?' He thought for a moment in silence. Then he shook his head sorrowfully. "'It is what a brave man and a good friend should do,' he said. "'Yet it seems most foolish, for the Mahars will most certainly condemn you to death for running away, and so you will be accomplishing nothing for your friends by returning. Never in all my life have I heard of a prisoner returning to the Mahars of his own free will. There are but few who escape them though some do, and these would rather die than be recaptured. "'I see no other way, Ja,' I said, though I can assure you that I would rather go to Sheol after Perry than to Futra. However, Perry is much too pious to make the probability at all great that I should ever be called upon to rescue him from the former locality.' Ja asked me what Sheol was, and when I explained, as best I could, he said, you are speaking of Molop Az, the flaming sea upon which Pellucidar floats. All the dead who are buried in the ground go there. Piece by piece they are carried down to Molop Az by the little demons who dwell there. We know this because when graves are opened we find that the bodies have been partially or entirely borne off. That is why we of Anorak place our dead in high trees, 
where the birds may find them and bear them bit by bit to the dead world above the land of awful shadow. If we kill an enemy, we place his body in the ground that it may go to Molop as. As we talked, we had been walking up the canyon down which I had come to the great ocean and the Scythic. Ja did his best to dissuade me from returning to Futra, but when he saw that I was determined to do so, he consented to guide me to a point from which I could see the plain where lay the city. To my surprise, the distance was but short from the beach where I had again met Ja. It was evident that I had spent much time following the windings of a tortuous canyon, while just beyond the ridge lay the city of Futra, near to which I must have come several times. As we topped the ridge and saw the granite gate towers dotting the flowering plain at our feet, Ja made a final effort to persuade me to abandon my mad purpose and return with him to Anorak, but I was firm in my resolve, and at last he bid me good-bye assured in his own mind that he was looking upon me for the last time. I was sorry to part with Ja, for I had come to like him very much indeed. With his hidden city upon the island of Anorak as a base and his savage warriors as escort, Perry and I could have accomplished much in the line of exploration, and I hoped that we were successful in our effort to escape we might return to Anorak later. There was, however, one great thing to be accomplished first, at least it was the great thing to me, the finding of Dian the Beautiful. I wanted to make amends for the affront I had put upon her in my ignorance, and I wanted to—well, I wanted to see her again, and to be with her. Down the hillside I made my way into the gorgeous field of flowers, and then across the rolling land toward the shadowless columns that guard the ways to buried Futra. At a quarter-mile from the nearest entrance I was discovered by the Sagoth guard, and in an instant four of the gorilla men were dashing toward me. Though they brandished their long spears and yelled like wild Comanches, I paid not the slightest attention to them, walking quietly toward them as though unaware of their existence. My manner had the effect upon them that I had hoped, and as we came quite near together they ceased their savage shouting. It was evident that they had expected me to turn and flee at sight of them, thus presenting that which they most enjoyed, a moving human target at which to cast their spears. "'What do you here?' shouted one, and then, as he recognized me, "'Ho! It is the slave who claims to be from another world, he who escaped when the thag ran amuck within the amphitheater. But why do you return, having once made good your escape?' "'I did not escape.' I replied. I but ran away to avoid the thag as did others, and coming into a long passage I became confused and lost my way in the foothills beyond Futra. Only now have I found my way back." "'And you come of your free will back to Futra?' exclaimed one of the guardsmen. "'Where else might I go?' I asked. "'I am a stranger within Pellucidar, and know no other where than Futra. Why should I not desire to be in Futra?' Am I not well-fed and well-treated? Am I not happy? What better lot could man desire?" The Sagoths scratched their heads. This was a new one on them, and so, being stupid brutes, they took me to their masters, whom they felt would be better fitted to solve the riddle of my return, for riddle they still considered it. I had spoken to the Sagoths as I had, for the purpose of throwing them off the scent of my purposed attempt at escape. 
if they thought that I was so satisfied with my lot within Futra that I would voluntarily return when I had once had so excellent an opportunity to escape, they would never for an instant imagine that I could be occupied in arranging another escape immediately upon my return to the city. So they led me before a slimy mahar who clung to a slimy rock within the large room that was the thing's office. With cold, reptilian eyes, the creature seemed to bore through the thin veneer of my deceit and read my inmost thoughts. It heeded the story which the Sagas told of my return to Futra, watching the gorilla men's lips and fingers during the recital. Then it questioned me through one of the Sagoths. You say that you return to Futra of your own free will because you think yourself better off here than elsewhere. Do you not know that you may be the next chosen to give up your life in the interests of the wonderful scientific investigations that our learned ones are continually occupied with?" I hadn't heard of anything of that nature, but I thought best not to admit it. I could be in no more danger here, I said, than naked and unarmed in the savage jungles or upon the lonely plains of Pellucidar. I was fortunate, I think, to return to Futra at all. As it was, I barely escaped death within the jaws of a huge Scythic. No, I am sure that I am safer in the hands of intelligent creatures such as Rua Futra. At least such would be the case in my own world, where human beings like myself rule supreme. There the higher races of man extend protection and hospitality to the stranger within their gates, and being a stranger here I naturally assumed that a like courtesy would be accorded me. The Mahar looked at me in silence for some time after I ceased speaking and the Sagoth had translated my words to his master. The creature seemed deep in thought. Presently he communicated some message to the Sagoth. The latter turned and, motioning me to follow him, left the presence of the reptile. Behind, on either side of me, marched the balance of the guard. "'What are they going to do with me?' I asked the fellow at my right. You are to appear before the learned ones who will question you regarding this strange world from which you say you come." After a moment's silence he turned to me again. "'Do you happen to know,' he asked, "'what the Mahars do to slaves who lie to them?' "'No,' I replied, "'nor does it interest me, as I have no intention of lying to the Mahars.' "'Then be careful that you don't repeat the impossible tale you told Saul Toto just now.' Another world, indeed, where human beings rule," he concluded in fine scorn. "'But it is the truth,' I insisted. "'From where else, then, did I come? I am not of Pellucidar. Anyone with half an eye could see that.' "'It is your misfortune, then,' he remarked dryly, "'that you may not be judged by one with but half an eye.' "'What will they do with me?' I asked, "'if they do not have a mind to believe me.' You may be sentenced to the arena, or go to the pits to be used in research work by the learned ones," he replied. "'And what will they do with me in there?' I persisted. "'No one knows except the Mahars and those who go to the pits with them. But as the latter never return, their knowledge does them but little good. It is said that the learned ones cut up their subjects while they are still alive, thus learning many useful things. However, I should not imagine that it would prove very useful to him who was being cut up. But, of course, this is all but conjecture. The chances are that, ere long, you will know much more about it than I." And he grinned as he spoke. The Sagoths have a well-developed sense of humor. 
And suppose it is the arena, I continued. What then? You saw the two who met the Tarag and the Thag the time that you escaped, he said. Yes. Your end in the arena would be similar to what was intended for them, he explained, though, of course, the same kinds of animals might not be employed. It is sure death in either event, I asked. What becomes of those who go below with the learned ones, I do not know, nor does any other, he replied. But those who go to the arena may come out alive and thus regain their liberty, as did the two whom you saw. They gain their liberty? And how? It is the custom of the Mahars to liberate those who remain alive within the arena after the beasts depart or are killed. Thus it has happened that several mighty warriors from far distant lands, whom we have captured on our slave raids, have battled the brutes turned in upon them and slain them, thereby winning their freedom. In the instance which you witnessed the beasts killed each other, but the result was the same. The man and the woman were liberated, furnished with weapons, and started on their homeward journey. Upon the left shoulder of each a mark was burned, the mark of the Mahars, which will forever protect those two from slaving parties. There is a slender chance for me, then, if I be sent to the arena, and none at all if the learned ones drag me to the pits. You are quite right, he replied, but do not felicitate yourself too quickly should you be sent to the arena, for there is scarce one in a thousand who comes out alive. To my surprise they returned me to the same building in which I had been confined with Perry and Gack before my escape. At the doorway I was turned over to the guards there. "'He will doubtless be called before the investigator shortly,' said he who had brought me back. "'So have him in readiness.' The guards in whose hands I now found myself, upon hearing that I had returned of my own volition to Futra, evidently felt that it would be safe to give me liberty within the building, as had been the custom before I had escaped, and so I was told to return to whatever duty had been mine formerly. My first act was to hunt up Perry, whom I found poring, as usual, over the great tomes that he was supposed to be merely dusting and rearranging upon new shelves. As I entered the room he glanced up and nodded pleasantly to me only to resume his work as though I had never been away at all. I was both astonished and hurt at his indifference, and to think that I was risking death to return to him purely from a sense of duty and affection. "'Why, Perry!' I exclaimed. "'Haven't you a word for me after my long absence?' "'Long absence!' he repeated in evident astonishment. "'What do you mean?' "'Are you crazy, Perry?' Do you mean to say that you have not missed me since that time we were separated by the charging thag within the arena? That time, he repeated. Why, man, I have but just returned from the arena. You reached here almost as soon as I. Had you been much later, I should indeed have been worried, and as it is, I had intended asking you about how you escaped the beast as soon as I had completed the translation of this most interesting passage. Perry! You are mad!" I exclaimed. Why, the Lord only knows how long I have been away. I have been to other lands, discovered a new race of humans within Pellucidar, seen the Mahars at their worship in their hidden temple, and barely escaped with my life from them and from a great labyrinthodon that I met afterward, following my long and tedious wanderings across an unknown world. I must have been away for months, Perry, 
and now you barely look up from your work when I return and insist that we have been separated but a moment? Is that any way to treat a friend? I am surprised at you, Perry, and if I thought for a moment that you cared no more for me than this, I should not have returned to chance death at the hands of the Mahars for your sake." The old man looked at me for a long time before he spoke. There was a puzzled expression upon his wrinkled face and a look of hurt sorrow in his eyes. "'David, my boy,' he said, "'how could you for a moment doubt my love for you? There is something strange here that I cannot understand. I know that I am not mad, and I am equally sure that you are not. But how in the world are we to account for the strange hallucinations that each of us seems to harbor relative to the passage of time since last we saw each other?' You are positive that months have gone by, while to me it seems equally certain that not more than an hour ago I sat beside you in the amphitheater. Can it be that both of us are right, and at the same time both are wrong? First, tell me what time it is, and then maybe I can solve our problem. Do you catch my meaning? I didn't, and said so. Yes, continued the old man, we are both right. To me, bent over my book here, there has been no lapse of time. I have done little or nothing to waste my energies, and so have required neither food nor sleep. But you, on the contrary, have walked and fought and wasted strength and tissue, which must needs be rebuilt by nutriment and food, and so, having eaten and slept many times since you last saw me, you naturally measure the lapse of time largely by these acts. As a matter of fact, David, I am rapidly coming to the conviction that there is no such thing as time. Surely there could be no time here within Pellucidar, where there are no means for measuring or recording time. Why, the Mahars themselves take no account of such a thing as time. I find here in all their literary works but a single tense, the present. There seems to be neither past nor future with them. Of course, it is impossible for our outer earthly minds to grasp such a condition, but our recent experiences seem to demonstrate its existence." It was too big a subject for me, and I said so. But Perry seemed to enjoy nothing better than speculating upon it, and after listening with interest to my account of the adventures through which I had passed, he returned once more to the subject, which he was enlarging upon with considerable fluency when he was interrupted by the entrance of a Sagoth. "'Come,' commanded the intruder, beckoning to me. "'The investigators would speak with you.' "'Good-bye, Perry,' I said, clasping the old man's hand. "'There may be nothing but the present, and no such thing as time, but I feel that I am about to take a trip into the hereafter, from which I shall never return. If you and Gak should manage to escape, I want you to promise me that you will find Dean the Beautiful and tell her that with my last words I asked her forgiveness for the unintentional affront I put upon her, and that my one wish was to be spared long enough to right the wrong that I had done her." Tears came to Perry's eyes. "'I cannot believe but that you will return, David,' he said. It would be awful to think of living out the balance of my life without you among these hateful and repulsive creatures. If you are taken away, I shall never escape, for I feel that I am as well off here as I should be anywhere within this buried world. Good-bye, my boy, good-bye." And then his old voice faltered and broke, 
and as he hid his face in his hands the Sagoth guardsman grasped me roughly by the shoulder and hustled me from the chamber. End of chapter 10、Chapter、Chapter 11 Four Dead Mahars. A moment later, I was standing before a dozen Mahars, the social investigators of Futra. They asked me many questions through a Sagoth interpreter. I answered them all truthfully. They seemed particularly interested in my account of the outer earth and the strange vehicle which had brought Perry and me to Pellucidar. I thought that I had convinced them, and after they had sat in silence for a long time following my examination, I expected to be ordered returned to my quarters. During this apparent silence, they were debating through the medium of strange, unspoken language the merits of my tale. At last, the head of the tribunal communicated the result of their conference to the officer in charge of the Sagoth Guard. Come, he said to me, you are sentenced to the experimental pits. For having dared to insult the intelligence of the mighty ones with the ridiculous tale you have had the temerity to unfold to them. Do you mean that they do not believe me? I asked, totally astonished. Believe you, he laughed. Do you mean to say that you expected anyone to believe so impossible a lie? I was hopeless, and so I walked in silence beside my guard down through the dark corridors and runways toward my awful doom. At a low level, we came upon a number of lighted chambers in which we saw many Mahars engaged in various occupations. To one of these chambers, my guard escorted me, and before leaving, they chained me to a side wall. There were other humans similarly chained. Upon a long table lay a victim, even as I was ushered into the room. Several Mahars stood about the poor creature, holding him down so that he could not move. Another, grasping a sharp knife with her three toed forefoot, was laying open the victim's chest and abdomen. No anesthetic had been administered, and the shrieks and groans of the tortured man were terrible to hear. This, indeed, was vivisection with a vengeance. Cold sweat broke out upon me as I realized that soon my turn would come. And to think that where there was no such thing as time, I might easily imagine that my suffering was enduring for months before death finally released me. The Maharas had paid not the slightest attention to me as I had been brought into the room. So deeply immersed were they in their work that I am sure they did not even know that the Sagas had entered with me. The door was close by. Would that I could reach it! But those heavy chains precluded any such possibility. I looked about for some means of escape from my bonds. Upon the floor between me and the Mahars lay a tiny surgical instrument which one of them must have dropped. It looked not unlike a button hook, but was much smaller, and its point was sharpened. A hundred times in my boyhood days had I picked locks with a button hook. Could I but reach that little bit of polished steel, I might yet effect at least a temporary escape. Crawling to the limit of my chain, I found that by reaching one hand as far out as I could, my fingers still fell an inch short of the coveted instrument. It was tantalizing. Stretch every fiber of my being as I would, I could not quite make it. 
At last I turned about and extended one foot toward the object. My heart came to my throat. I could just touch the thing. But suppose that in my effort to drag it toward me I should accidentally shove it still farther away and thus entirely out of reach. Cold sweat broke out upon me from every pore. Slowly and cautiously I made the effort. My toes dropped upon the cold metal. Gradually I worked it toward me, until I felt that it was within reach of my hand and a moment later I had turned about and the precious thing was in my grasp. Assiduously I fell to work upon the mahar lock that held my chain. It was pitifully simple. A child might have picked it and a moment later I was free. The mahars were now evidently completing their work at the table. One already turned away and was examining other victims, evidently with the intention of selecting the next subject. Those at the table had their backs toward me. But for the creature walking toward us I might have escaped that moment. Slowly the thing approached me, when its attention was attracted by a huge slave chained a few yards to my right. Here the reptile stopped and commenced to go over the poor devil carefully, and as it did so its back turned toward me for an instant, and in that instant I gave two mighty leaps that carried me out of the chamber into the corridor beyond, down which I raced with all the speed I could command. Where I was, or whither I was going, I knew not. My only thought was to place as much distance as possible between me and that frightful chamber of torture. Presently I reduced my speed to a brisk walk, and later, realizing the danger of running into some new predicament, were I not careful, I moved still more slowly and cautiously. After a time I came to a passage that seemed in some mysterious way familiar to me, and presently, chancing to glance within the chamber which led from the corridor, I saw three mahars curled up in slumber upon a bed of skins. I could have shouted aloud in joy and relief. It was the same corridor and the same mahars that I had intended to have lead so important a role in our escape from Futra. Providence had indeed been kind to me, for the reptiles still slept. My one great danger now lay in returning to the upper levels in search of Perry and Gak, but there was nothing else to be done, and so I hastened upward. When I came to the frequented portions of the building I found a large burden of skins in a corner and these I lifted to my head, carrying them in such a way that ends and corners fell down about my shoulders completely hiding my face. Thus disguised I found Perry and Gak together in the chamber where we had been wont to eat and sleep. Both were glad to see me, it was needless to say, though of course they had known nothing of the fate that had been meted out to me by my judges. It was decided that no time should now be lost before attempting to put our plan of escape to the test, as I could not hope to remain hidden from the Sagoths long, nor could I forever carry that bale of skins about upon my head without arousing suspicion. However, it seemed likely that it would carry me once more safely through the crowded passages and chambers of the upper levels, and so I set out with Perry and Gak, the stench of the illy-cured pelts fairly choking me. Together we repaired to the first tier of corridors beneath the main floor of the buildings, and here Perry and Gak halted to await me. The buildings are cut out of the solid limestone formation. There is nothing at all remarkable about their architecture. The rooms are sometimes rectangular, sometimes circular, and again oval in shape. 
the corridors which connect them are narrow and not always straight. The chambers are lighted by diffused sunlight reflected through tubes similar to those by which the avenues are lighted. The lower the tiers of chambers, the darker. Most of the corridors are entirely unlighted. The Mahars can see quite well in semi-darkness. Down to the main floor we encountered many Mahars, Sagoths, and slaves, but no attention was paid to us as we became a part of the domestic life of the building. There was but a single entrance leading from the palace into the avenue, and this was well guarded by Sagoths. This doorway alone were we forbidden to pass. It is true that we were not supposed to enter the deeper corridors and apartments, except on special occasions when we were instructed to do so. But as we were considered a lower order without intelligence, there was little reason to fear that we could accomplish any harm by doing so, and so we were not hindered as we entered the corridor which led below. Wrapped in a skin, I carried three swords and the two bows and the arrows which Perry and I had fashioned. As many slaves bore skin-wrapped burdens to and fro, my load attracted no comment. Where I left Gak and Perry there were no other creatures in sight, and so I withdrew one sword from the package, and leaving the balance of the weapons with Perry, started on alone toward the lower levels. Having come to the apartment in which the three Mahars slept, I entered silently on tiptoe, forgetting that the creatures were without the sense of hearing. With a quick thrust through the heart I disposed of the first, but my second thrust was not so fortunate, so that before I could kill the next of my victims it had hurled itself against the third, who sprang quickly up, facing me with wide distended jaws. But fighting is not the occupation which the race of Mahars loves, and when the thing saw that I already had dispatched two of its companions, and that my sword was red with their blood, it made a dash to escape me but I was too quick for it, and so, half-hopping, half-flying, it scurried down another corridor with me close upon its heels. Its escape meant the utter ruin of our plan, and in all probability my instant death. This thought lent wings to my feet, but even at my best I could do more than hold my own with the leaping thing before me. Of a sudden it turned into an apartment on the right of the corridor, and an instant later, as I rushed in, I found myself facing two of the Mahars. The one who had been there when we entered had been occupied with a number of metal vessels, into which had been put powders and liquids, as I judged from the array of flasks standing about upon the bench where it had been working. In an instant I realized what I had stumbled upon. It was the very room for the finding of which Perry had given me minute directions. It was the buried chamber in which was hidden the great secret of the race of Mahars, and on the bench beside the flasks lay the skin-bound book which held the only copy of the thing I was to have sought, after dispatching the three Mahars in their sleep. There was no exit from the room other than the doorway in which I now stood facing the two frightful reptiles. Cornered, I knew that they would fight like demons, and they were well equipped to fight if fight they must. Together they launched themselves upon me, and though I ran one of them through the heart on the instant, the other fastened its gleaming fangs about my sword-arm above the elbow, and then with their sharp talons commenced to rake me about the body, evidently intent upon disemboweling me. I saw that it was useless to hope that I might release my arm from that powerful vice-like grip which seemed to be severing my arm from my body. 
The pain I suffered was intense, but it only served to spur me to greater efforts to overcome my antagonist. Back and forth across the floor we struggled, the Mahar dealing me terrific, cutting blows with her forefeet, while I attempted to protect my body with my left hand, at the same time watching for an opportunity to transfer my blade from my now useless sword-hand to its rapidly weakening mate. At last I was successful, and with what seemed to me my last ounce of strength I ran the blade through the ugly body of my foe. Soundless as it had fought, it died, and though weak from pain and loss of blood, it was with an emotion of triumphant pride that I stepped across its convulsively stiffening corpse to snatch up the most potent secret of a world. A single glance assured me it was the very thing that Perry had described to me. And as I grasped it, did I think of what it meant to the human race of Pellucidar? Did there flash through my mind the thought that countless generations of my own kind, yet unborn, would have reason to worship me for the thing that I had accomplished for them? I did not. I thought of a beautiful, oval face, gazing out of limpid eyes through a waving mass of jet-black hair. I thought of red, red lips, God made for kissing. And of a sudden, apropos of nothing, standing there alone in the secret chamber of the Maharas of Pellucidar, I realized that I loved Dion the Beautiful. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 12 Pursuit. For an instant, I stood there thinking of her, and then, with a sigh, I tucked the book in the thong that supported my loincloth and turned to leave the apartment. At the bottom of the corridor which leads aloft from the lower chambers I whistled in accordance with the prearranged signal which was to announce to Perry and Gack that I had been successful. A moment later they stood beside me, and to my surprise I saw that Hooja the Sly One accompanied them. "'He joined us,' explained Perry, "'and would not be denied. The fellow is a fox. He scents escape.' and rather than be thwarted of our chance now, I told him that I would bring him to you and let you decide whether he might accompany us." I had no love for Huja and no confidence in him. I was sure that if he thought it would profit him he would betray us, but I saw no way out of it now, and the fact that I had killed four Mahars instead of only the three I had expected to made it possible to include the fellow in our scheme of escape. Very well, I said, you may come with us, Huja, but at the first intimation of treachery I shall run my sword through you. Do you understand? He said that he did. Sometime later we had removed the skins from the four Mahars, and so succeeded in crawling inside of them ourselves that there seemed an excellent chance for us to pass unnoticed from Futra. It was not an easy thing to fasten the hides together where we had split them along the belly to remove them from their carcasses, but by remaining out until the others had all been sewed in with my help, and then leaving an aperture in the breast of Perry's skin through which he could pass his hands to sew me up, we were enabled to accomplish our design to really much better purpose than I had hoped. We managed to keep the heads erect by passing our swords up through the necks and by the same means were enabled to move them about in a lifelike manner. 
we had our greatest difficulty with the webbed feet, but even that problem was finally solved, so that when we moved about we did so quite naturally. Tiny holes punctured in the baggy throats into which our heads were thrust permitted us to see well enough to guide our progress. Thus we started up toward the main floor of the building. Gak headed this strange procession, then came Perry, followed by Huja, while I brought up the rear, after admonishing Huja that I had so arranged my sword that I could thrust it through the head of my disguise into his vitals, were he to show any indication of faltering. As the noise of hurrying feet warned me that we were entering the busy corridors of the main level, my heart came up into my mouth. It is with no sense of shame that I admit that I was frightened. Never before in my life, nor since, did I experience any such agony of soul-searing fear and suspense as enveloped me. If it be possible to sweat blood, I sweat it then. Slowly, after the manner of locomotion habitual to the Mahars, when they were not using their wings, we crept through the throngs of busy slaves, Sagoths, and Mahars. After what seemed an eternity we reached the outer door which leads into the main avenue of Futra. Many Sagoths loitered near the opening. They glanced at Gak as he padded between them. Then Perry passed, and then Huja. Now it was my turn, and then, in a sudden fit of freezing terror, I realized that the warm blood from my wounded arm was trickling down through the dead foot of the Mahar skin I wore, and leaving its tell-tale mark upon the pavement, for I saw a Sagoth call a companion's attention to it. The guard stepped before me, and pointing to my bleeding foot, spoke to me in the sign language which these two races employ as a means of communication. Even had I known what he was saying, I could not have replied with the dead thing that covered me. I once had seen a great Mahar freeze a presumptuous Sagoth with a look. It seemed my only hope, so I tried it. Stopping in my tracks, I moved my sword so that it made the dead head appear to turn inquiring eyes upon the gorilla man. For a long moment I stood perfectly still, eyeing the fellow with those dead eyes. Then I lowered the head and started slowly on. For a moment all hung in the balance, but before I touched him the guard stepped to one side and I passed on out into the avenue. On we went up the broad street but now we were safe for the very numbers of our enemies that surrounded us on all sides. Fortunately there was a great concourse of Mahars repairing to the shallow lake which lies a mile or more from the city. They go there to indulge their amphibian proclivities in diving for small fish, and enjoying the cool depths of the water. It is a fresh-water lake, shallow and free from the larger reptiles which make the use of the great seas of Pellucidar impossible for any but their own kind. In the thick of the crowd we passed up the steps and out onto the plain. For some distance Gak remained with the stream that was traveling toward the lake. But finally at the bottom of a little gully he halted, and there we remained until all had passed and we were alone. Then still in our disguises we set off directly away from Futra. The heat of the vertical rays of the sun was fast making our horrible prisons unbearable so that, after passing a low divide and entering a sheltering forest, we finally discarded the Mahar skins that had brought us thus far in safety. I shall not weary you with the details of that bitter and galling flight, how we traveled at a dogged run until we dropped in our tracks. 
how we were beset by strange and terrible beasts, how we barely escaped the cruel fangs of lions and tigers the size of which would dwarf into pitiful insignificance the greatest felines of the outer world. On and on we raced, our one thought to put as much distance between ourselves and Futra as possible. Gak was leading us to his own land, the land of Sari. No sign of pursuit had developed, and yet we were sure that somewhere behind us relentless Sagoths were dogging our tracks. Gak said they never failed to hunt down their quarry until they had captured it or themselves been turned back by a superior force. Our only hope, he said, lay in reaching his tribe which was quite strong enough in their mountain fastness to beat off any number of Sagoths. At last, after what seemed months, and may I now realize, have been years, we came in sight of the dun escarpment which buttressed the foothills of Sari. At almost the same instant, Huja, who looked ever quite as much behind as before, announced that he could see a body of men far behind us topping a low ridge in our wake. It was the long-expected pursuit. I asked Gak if we could make Sari in time to escape them. We may, he replied, but you will find that the Sagoths can move with incredible swiftness, and as they are almost tireless they are doubtless much fresher than we. Then he paused, glancing at Perry. I knew what he meant. The old man was exhausted. For much of the period of our flight either Gak or I had half supported him on the march. With such a handicap less fleet pursuers than the Sagoths might easily overtake us before we could scale the rugged heights which confronted us. "'You and Huja go on ahead,' I said. "'Perry and I will make it if we are able. We cannot travel as rapidly as you two, and there is no reason why all should be lost because of that. It can't be helped. We have simply to face it.' "'I will not desert a companion,' was Gak's simple reply. I hadn't known that this great, hairy, primeval man had any such nobility of character stowed away inside him. I had always liked him, but now to my liking was added honor and respect. Yes, and love. But still I urged him to go on ahead, insisting that if he could reach his people he might be able to bring out a sufficient force to drive off the Sagoths and rescue Perry and myself. No, he wouldn't leave us, and that was all there was to it but he suggested that Huja might hurry on and warn the Sarians of the king's danger. It didn't require much urging to start Huja. The naked idea was enough to send him leaping on ahead of us into the foothills which we now had reached. Perry realized that he was jeopardizing Gak's life and mine, and the old fellow fairly begged us to go on without him, although I knew that he was suffering a perfect anguish of terror at the thought of falling into the hands of the Sagoths. Gak finally solved the problem, in part, by lifting Perry in his powerful arms and carrying him. While the act cut down Gak's speed, he still could travel faster thus than when half-supporting the stumbling old man. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core Chapter 13 The Sly One The Sagoths were gaining on us rapidly. 
for once they had sighted us they had greatly increased their speed. On and on we stumbled up the narrow canyon that Gek had chosen to approach the heights of Sari. On either side rose precipitous cliffs of gorgeous, party-colored rock, while beneath our feet a thick mountain grass formed a soft and noiseless carpet. Since we had entered the canyon we had had no glimpse of our pursuers, and I was commencing to hope that they had lost our trail and that we would reach the now rapidly nearing cliffs in time to scale them before we should be overtaken. Ahead we neither saw nor heard any sign which might betoken the success of Huja's mission. By now he should have reached the outposts of the Sarians, and we should at least hear the savage cries of the tribesmen as they swarmed to arms in answer to their king's appeal for succor. In another moment the frowning cliffs ahead should be black with primeval warriors, but nothing of the kind happened. As a matter of fact, the Sly One had betrayed us. At the moment that we expected to see Sarian spearmen charging to our relief at Huja's back, the craven traitor was sneaking around the outskirts of the nearest Sarian village, that he might come up from the other side when it was too late to save us, claiming that he had become lost among the mountains. Huja still harbored ill-will against me because of the blow I had struck in Dian's protection, and his malevolent spirit was equal to sacrificing us all that he might be revenged upon me. As we drew nearer the barrier cliffs and no sign of rescuing Sarians appeared, Gak became both angry and alarmed, and presently, as the sound of rapidly approaching pursuit fell upon our ears, he called to me over his shoulder that we were lost. A backward glance gave me a glimpse of the first of the Sagoths at the far end of a considerable stretch of canyon, through which we had just passed, and then a sudden turning shut the ugly creature from my view. But the loud howl of triumphant rage which rose behind us was evidence that the gorilla men had sighted us. Again the canyon veered sharply to the left, but to the right another branch ran on at a lesser deviation from the general direction so that appeared more like the main canyon than the left-hand branch. The Sagoths were now not over two hundred and fifty yards behind us, and I saw that it was hopeless for us to expect to escape other than by a ruse. There was a bare chance of saving Gak and Perry, and as I reached the branching of the canyon I took the chance. Pausing there I waited until the foremost Sagoth hove into sight. Gak and Perry had disappeared around a bend in the left-hand canyon, and as the Sagoth's savage yell announced that he had seen me, I turned and fled up the right-hand branch. My ruse was successful, and the entire party of manhunters raced headlong after me up one canyon, while Gak bore Perry to safety up the other. Running has never been my particular athletic forte, and now, when my very life depended upon fleetness of foot, I cannot say that I ran any better than on the occasions when my pitiful base-running had called down upon my head the rooter's raucous and reproachful cries of, "'Ice-wagon!' and "'Call a cab!' The Sagoths were gaining on me rapidly. There was one in particular, fleeter than his fellows, who was perilously close. The canyon had become a rocky slit rising roughly at a steep angle toward what seemed a pass between two abutting peaks. What lay beyond I could not even guess, possibly a sheer drop of hundreds of feet into the corresponding valley upon the other side. Could it be that I had plunged into a cul-de-sac? 
realizing that I could not hope to outdistance the Sagas to the top of the canyon, I had determined to risk all in an attempt to check them temporarily, and to this end had unslung my rudely made bow and plucked an arrow from the skin quiver which hung behind my shoulder. As I fitted the shaft with my right hand, I stopped and wheeled toward the gorilla man. In the world of my birth I never had drawn a shaft, but since our escape from Futra I had kept the party supplied with small game by means of my arrows, and so, through necessity, had developed a fair degree of accuracy. During our flight from Futra I had restrung my bow with a piece of heavy gut taken from a huge tiger, which Gak and I had worried and finally dispatched with arrows, spear, and sword. The hard wood of the bow was extremely tough, and this, with the strength and elasticity of my new string, gave me unwanted confidence in my weapon. Never had I greater need of steady nerves than then. Never were my nerves and muscles under better control. I sighted as carefully and deliberately as though at a straw target. The Sagoth had never before seen a bow and arrow, but of a sudden it must have swept over his dull intellect that the thing I held toward him was some sort of engine of destruction. For he too came to a halt, simultaneously swinging his hatchet for a throw. It is one of the many methods in which they employ this weapon, and the accuracy of aim which they achieve, even under the most unfavorable circumstances, is little short of miraculous. My shaft was drawn back its full length. My eye had centered its sharp point upon the left breast of my adversary. And then he launched his hatchet, and I released my arrow. At the instant that our missiles flew I leapt to one side, but the Sagoth sprang forward to follow up his attack with a spear-thrust. I felt the swish of the hatchet as it grazed my head, and at the same instant my shaft pierced the Sagoth's savage heart, and with a single groan he lunged almost at my feet, stone dead. Close behind him were two more, fifty yards perhaps, but the distance gave me time to snatch up the dead guardsman's shield for the close call his hatchet had just given me had borne in upon me the urgent need I had for one. Those which I had purloined at Futra we had not been able to bring along because their size precluded our concealing them within the skins of the Mahars, which had brought us safely from the city. With the shield slipped well up on my left arm I let fly with another arrow, which brought down a second Sagoth, and then, as his fellow's hatchet sped toward me, I caught it upon the shield and fitted another shaft for him. But he did not wait to receive it. Instead he turned and retreated toward the main body of guerrilla men. Evidently he had seen enough of me for the moment. Once more I took up my flight, nor were the Sagas apparently over-anxious to press their pursuit so closely as before. Unmolested I reached the top of the canyon where I found a sheer drop of two or three hundred feet to the bottom of a rocky chasm but on the left a narrow ledge rounded the shoulder of the overhanging cliff. Along this I advanced, and at a sudden turning, a few yards beyond the canyon's end, the path widened, and at my left I saw the opening to a large cave. Before the ledge continued until it passed from sight about another projecting buttress of the mountain. Here I felt I could defy an army, for but a single foeman could advance upon me at a time nor could he know that I was awaiting him until he came full upon me around the corner of the turn. 
About me lay scattered stones crumbled from the cliff above. They were of various sizes and shapes, but enough were of handy dimensions for use as ammunition in lieu of my precious arrows. Gathering a number of stones into a little pile beside the mouth of the cave, I waited the advance of the Sagoths. As I stood there, tense and silent, listening for the first faint sound that should announce the approach of my enemies, a slight noise from within the cave's black depths attracted my attention. It might have been produced by the moving of the great body of some huge beast rising from the rock floor of its lair. At almost the same instant I thought that I caught the scraping of hide sandals upon the ledge beyond the turn. For the next few seconds my attention was considerably divided. And then, from the inky blackness at my right, I saw two flaming eyes glaring into mine. They were on a level that was over two feet above my head. It is true that the beast who owned them might be standing upon a ledge within the cave, or that it might be rearing up upon its hind legs, but I had seen enough of the monsters of Pellucidar to know that I might be facing some new and frightful titan whose dimensions and ferocity eclipsed those of any I had seen before. Whatever it was, it was coming slowly toward the entrance of the cave, and now, deep and forbidding, it uttered a low and ominous growl. I waited no longer to dispute possession of the ledge with the thing which owned that voice. The noise had not been loud, I doubt if the Sagoths heard it at all but the suggestion of latent possibilities behind it was such that I knew it would only emanate from a gigantic and ferocious beast. As I backed along the ledge I soon was past the mouth of the cave, where I no longer could see those fearful flaming eyes, but an instant later I caught sight of the fiendish face of a Sagoth as it warily advanced beyond the cliff's turn on the far side of the cave's mouth. As the fellow saw me, he leapt along the ledge in pursuit, and after him came as many of his companions as could crowd upon each other's heels. At the same time the beast emerged from the cave, so that he and the Sagoths came face to face upon that narrow ledge. The thing was an enormous cave-bear, rearing its colossal bulk fully eight feet at the shoulder, while from the tip of its nose to the end of its stubby tail it was fully twelve feet in length. As it sighted the Sagoths it emitted a most frightful roar, and with open mouth charged full upon them. With a cry of terror the foremost gorilla-man turned to escape, but behind him he ran full upon his onrushing companions. The horror of the following seconds is indescribable. The Sagoth nearest the cave-bear, finding his escape blocked, turned and leapt deliberately to an awful death upon the jagged rocks three hundred feet below. Then those giant jaws reached out and gathered in the next. There was a sickening sound of crushing bones, and the mangled corpse was dropped over the cliff's edge. Nor did the mighty beast even pause in his steady advance along the ledge. Shrieking Sagoths were now leaping madly over the precipice to escape him, and the last I saw he rounded the turn still pursuing the demoralized remnant of the man-hunters. For a long time I could hear the horrid roaring of the brute intermingled with the screams and shrieks of his victims, until finally the awful sounds dwindled and disappeared in the distance. Later I learned from Gak, who had finally come to his tribesmen and returned with a party to rescue me, that the Rith, as it is called, 
pursued the Sagoths until it had exterminated the entire band. Gak was, of course, positive that I had fallen prey to the terrible creature, which within Pellucidar is truly the king of beasts. Not caring to venture back into the canyon, where I might fall prey either to the cave-bear or the Sagoths, I continued on along the ledge, believing that by following around the mountain I could reach the land of Sari from another direction. But I evidently became confused by the twisting and turning of the canyons and gullies, for I did not come to the land of Sari then, nor for a long time thereafter. End of chapter 13